pray, and, um, and then we'll get in to the text. Father, I pray that you would open your word to our hearts by the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit this day. Lord, may the text be protected from our misconceptions, from our preconceptions, from me. Lord, we want to hear from you today. We want to hear from your word. We want you to speak. And so we do ask again that your spirit who inspired these words would illuminate them to us today. That hearing them, we might be transformed by them and bring glory to your holy name. Amen. 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 Okay. So we're a few weeks into Second Peter now. We're plodding through verse by verse and we're picking up this week in verse 8. In verse 8. Um, the few things that we need to recall by way of context as we come in to verse 8 is simply that the basis of uh, what he has said so far is this faith of equal standing. We have a faith of equal standing and we do so um, because the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Equal standing with the apostles, whether we have been Christians for five minutes or 50 years, we are all in equal standing before God. We've noticed already multiple times the repetition of the word knowledge. Verse 2, we multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Verse 3 talks about through the knowledge of him and so on and so forth. And we're going to see that again. That's going to be something that's very crucial contextually as we move forwards. That knowledge, as we saw the last two weeks, that knowledge is... Um, the basis for our growth. We, d we don't grow on the basis of emotions or how we feel, but it's coming to know Jesus Christ is the means by which we grow. And uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But last week, we saw that on top of this faith that we all share, we are to make every effort to supplement, and I'll just read here from verse 5, to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And that's where we left it last time. And we went through these things. We saw the logical progression of them. Um, we spoke about that last time. But more importantly, we saw that though sanctification is a work that God does, and though it is the Holy Spirit working through our hearts that brings it about, Nonetheless, we are to make every effort. And we saw here again, as we constantly see in Scripture, this uh, uncontradictory, to God at least, parallel of human responsibility and divine accomplishment side by side, divine sovereignty. Now, having spoken of these qualities, we pick up then in verse 8. And he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to try and get through to verse 11 today, but there, there's so much in this one verse alone that we're going to be a little while here. Notice the four, notice the connection to the previous section. We need to be adding these qualities on top of the faith that we have, making every effort to do so. And he says that if... And that's the condition here. If they are yours 
and are increasing. There is no such thing as a stagnant Christian life. For the Christian life is like a treadmill. You're either moving or you're falling off the back. It's as simple as that. We, we don't get the option to put our Christian life on hold. We don't get to have a time out. Oh God, I'm, I'm just a bit overwhelmed with all this not sinning stuff right now. Can we just time out? It doesn't happen that way. And, and the reality is, is that every circumstance, every situation, every stress, every problem that we face in life, we either do so with God in the power of the Spirit, by the knowledge of Scripture, or we're going backwards. It's that simple. There is no middle ground. And I think that it's, it is very telling that he says here that these qualities need to be yours and they need to be increasing. Look, we do not want this to be a church where people come and they are kind of Christian-y enough and they remain that Christian-y year after year after year. I want for myself as much as for anybody else for us to be people who are constantly changing. And it's, it's a humbling process. You know, I, when, when we kind of go, we, we're going through life and we come up against something and whether it's something that, you know, our spouse raises or something that a, that a friend at church raises and then we see some area of sin in our lives and we're like, oh my goodness, I have been completely ignorant to this for 30 years, 40 years. And then it, it's humbling to at that point say, you know what? I've been justifying my sin and I need to change. But that is something that we all have to be doing, just, just day in, day out. That we, just, we need to constantly be increasing these qualities. Our, our virtues are never enough. Our godliness is never enough. Our steadfastness is never enough. We need to keep working, keep adding, keep making every effort. And of course, it, it's God's work, but we need to be doing all that we can. And that is the emphasis in the uh, context of this passage. And so we need to, we need to uh, have these qualities and they need to be increasing. And the result of that, if this is the case, if these qualities are ours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to have to be careful how we navigate the text today. In our circles, too often, we try and make things into two categories. There are those people who are unsaved, dead in their sin, non-Christians. And then there are those people who have been made alive in Christ, and they are Christians, and therefore they love the Lord, and their lives are constantly transforming, and they're just the most wonderful people. And, and it's just so exaggerated that I sometimes feel as if, you know, I need to be questioning my salvation every third second. That, that while Jesus talks in the parable of the wheat and the tares about how sometimes these two different plants will grow up side by side, 
and you wouldn't be able to discern the difference clearly until harvest time, that some Christians have made an entire career out of discerning the wheat from the tares long before harvest time. And we need to be careful not to do that. Now, we've already noticed last week that if we are saved, we have already escaped from the corruption of sinful desires. That being a Christian means, at the very least, that the desires of our hearts are starting to change. That we have been set free from sin. And so I'm not going to go the other direction and say that somehow, you know, somebody can walk on up when the music's playing in a minor key, just emotionally say, oh, I'm so sorry, Jesus, and then go off and live their life as they did before, and that we somehow have to acknowledge them to be Christians. I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is this. The sanctification is a process. It is a process. Now, I don't want to get too far from this, but I, I want to make sure that we're seeing the import of the text here, okay? That we do not want to be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, knowledge has come up again and again and again and again in this passage. It is clear that what Peter is talking about is he's talking about Christians. He's talking about believers who have knowledge. Knowledge in the sense of understanding and knowledge in the sense of an experiential relationship. Not one or the other, but both those things. And therefore, he is talking about believers. Therefore, there is a warning here that believers, genuinely saved Christians, can be ineffective It's important that we hear that. We can be ineffective. And we can um, be unfruitful. And I have to say, I often get quite frustrated with those in our church circles who look at ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness and are very quick to label people as unsaved. It happens too often. If somebody walked into this church today and they were overtly sinful, if they were struggling with overt sins, and I'll leave it to your imagination, but they walk in and it's very clear immediately that this person doesn't agree with the Bible on certain areas of life. How quick would we be to try and correct them? Or in some cases, perhaps even remove them. But if your sin is selfishness or pride, well, you're welcome. We might even give you a leadership position. It seems to me in many churches that's one of the qualifications. You know, I've been, you know, I've got to be careful because I'm a pastor here as well myself and I'm, I've got to be looking in the mirror as I say this, but I've been in church circles long enough to know that you would almost think that an inability to take correction is somehow in there in the pastoral epistles as a qualification of a pastor. And the reality is, is that we in churches have sins that we not only tolerate, but sometimes we embrace. And there are other sins that we are so opposed to that we won't even give people the grace to work through their sins just as God gave us the grace to work through our own. That is not to say that we tolerate sin. That is not to say that we say that things that the Bible says is sin are not sinful. Of course we don't. It's simply to say that we are still screw-ups now, no matter how many years we've been saved, 
And we have to understand that God isn't going to make people be what we want them to be within two weeks of walking through the door. It's called grace, my friends. And I praise God for it every day because I need it. And I know you do too. And so we need to make sure that others do. But, and here's the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, is that if somebody isn't confronted with sin, if we tolerate sin, if we, if we don't deal with these issues, then people are going to be unfruitful and ineffective. And we do not want to be unfruitful or ineffective. We want to be constantly growing and constantly changing. And as we've already seen, that is something that we have to be moving forwards in or else we are moving backwards. And so, if we have these qualities, if they are increasing, if we are making every effort to supplement our faith with these things, then that is going to protect us. It's going to keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, again, the, the fact that the word knowledge here does contain not merely understanding in the Greek understanding of the word, not merely understanding uh, per se, knowledge as we would use the word, but, but this sort of, this relational knowledge that we have with God does bring to mind John 15 and Jesus talking about us uh, abiding in him and the fruitfulness that comes from that as well. Perhaps Peter was thinking of that as he wrote. Verse 9 goes more specific in this regard. And the four at the beginning of the verse links it again with the one previously. I said this last time, didn't I? When you see all of these fours and all these connections and him saying this and so this and this and then this leads to this and this. It's very Paul-like, Pauline in, it's in his reasoning here. Um, so he says in verse 4, who, for, uh, verse 9, sorry, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Okay. If we lack in these qualities, if we are not making every effort to supplement our faith, with, with these qualities, if, if, if sanctification is not our concern, if either we think, I've got my ticket to heaven, I'm okay, thank you, or if we think, well, sanctification is what God does, I'll just, you know, lay back and let God get on with it. If we're, if we're taking that approach in, in any sense, then not only are we going to be unfruitful and ineffective, but in verse 9, we're told that we are nearsighted. So much so that we're effectively blind. I have a friend who is like this in the physical realm. He might, if he probably, he watches sometimes. Yeah, Max, I'm talking about you. Um, Max is a dear friend of my wife and I. He's a former student of ours. And he, he's legally blind. He is, he is legally blind. But he can, he can just about see enough that he can terrorize people on a bike. He's not allowed in a car, by, he's not allowed to drive a car by law. He loves them and he, he, he actually makes them, he kind of fixes them and stuff, but he's not allowed to drive one. I think he owns at least a couple. But he, he used to go around the campus on the college where I taught, terrorizing. I was like, oh, here's Max on his bike, quickly get out of the way. So he could see enough, but so little that he was legally blind. The, the, he could... He would have these uh, amazing glasses to be able to read the Bible text that would really kind of magnify and zoom in so he could see. So there was some sight, but there was so little sight that 
that he, he would see things uh, so, so, in such a blur that he was declared legally blind. Folks, we need to understand what the text is saying here. And I don't want to just say, make the same point again and again, but blindness, biblically speaking, is a synonym for being unsaved. Now, I would go to the Old Testament and the New Testament to show you this and support this, but I'd be here for a series of 25 sermons, so I'm going to just presume that you've read your Bible enough to know that. Whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's Jesus healing the blind, whether it's Isaiah's statements about um, imposing blindness upon Israel, whether it's Paul reiterating that kind of concept in, in, in the book of Romans regarding Israel, blindness is being unsaved. Hence, the Messiah coming and shining light. Hence, the command to Israel to bring light to the Gentiles. It means bringing salvation. Light into darkness is salvation into, in, into judgment. We see that throughout the scripture. Now, I want you to understand that not only is that something that is found in a few places, that is something that the Bible is completely and utterly saturated in. So with that basis of understanding, which everybody reading this text had and should to even today have, look at the, the shocking statement that Peter's made here. He says, you are a Christian. It's clear contextually he's talking to Christians. And he says, if you aren't moving forwards in your sanctification, if you've taken your foot off the pedal, so to speak, if these qualities are not increasing in your life, you are ineffective, you are unfruitful, and he says, it's as if you're unsaved. That's what he's saying. But he words it so carefully as if to say, no, no, you are saved, there is sight, but it's so little of it that you might as well be blind. And again, that's a message that many in our circles need to hear. Yes, it is normative for someone to be saved and to be transformed. But, but our lives are not this linear passage. Our lives are a roller coaster. People do backslide. People do fall away. And we're too quick to say, how long have they been falling away now? Three weeks? That's it. They were never saved. They're, they're on Christians. But joking aside, do we say four weeks, four months, four years? It, it's very, very hard. And many in our circles would say, well, you know, perseverance of the saints, if they persevere to the end. Well, what about those that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians, where he says, because of your overt sins, many of you have gotten sick. You take communion, even in the midst of sin, and as a result, you're sick. And some, he says, have even fallen asleep. That's terminology that Paul uses of death, but only ever death of a believer, not of unbelievers. So they're not going to be ones who are seen to be persevering to the end, are they? They sin and they sin and they sin. They get sick. They sin and they sin. They get more sick and they sin. And then they die. And that's all a result of their sin. Hardly perseverance of the saints, is it? So again, my point firstly is grace. It's grace. One of the greatest mistakes in my life has been thinking that when I'm frustrated with other people's sin, that I could change them by getting angry with them. 
it doesn't work. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's a kindness from us that leads others to repentance. And again, we just got to be people who treat those who have become ineffective, those who have become um, unfruitful, and treat them in a way that is full of grace. But I think that more importantly, as we look at this text now, we need to see this. We need to see that we have a real danger of becoming effectually blind, even though we're Christians. That if we are the kind of Christians who put the brakes on on sanctification, if we're the kind of Christians who will turn away from God in our heartache and our sadness and our bitterness, and it happens, and it happens a lot, where Christians will be going through their lives and then something will happen and it's just a step too far for us and we, we just don't want to pray, we don't want to be near God. And it's just so easy to fall off the wagon, so to speak. And I know what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I know how hard it can be as if the Bible's got a lock on it and you can't prize it open. That when you do and you try and read it, it's as if there's nothing that comes from it. And it's just a struggle constantly. What do we do? We keep trusting, we keep lamenting, we keep praying, we do what we can constantly. Because we must fear becoming effectually blind. And the blindness here is specifically spoken of in the modifying expression, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And this is something that we've referenced before and we will reference again and again and again because it is, is epidemic in many Christian circles, not so much our own but many others and you may have come in with, with this. But so often people think that becoming a Christian is simply saying a prayer and, you know, reciting what someone's told you to recite and boom, I can check the box and I'm a Christian. C Christianity is not about being set free from our sins so that we get to ticket to heaven. It's not about being set free from our sins so that we don't pay the price for those sins. Not only that, it's about being set free from our sins so that the desire to sin diminishes. So that we have this new nature. So that we can conquer sin in our life here and now. It's pointless talking about Jesus' power over sin when we're still walking in it. And that's what Peter's referring to here. He's saying, look, he's saying it's absolute blindness to, to, to think that you haven't got to be sanctified, you haven't got to be mature, because you were cleansed from your sins, so that you wouldn't walk in them, so you wouldn't be living a sinful life. You know? It's, it's, it's the same reason that, you know, it's hard to trust dentists who have no teeth. It's hard to trust doctors who are taking 20 medications themselves. You know, it's a case of here we are saying, hey, come and have a chat about how you can be free from your sin. Excuse me while I just, you know, commit various sins in front of you without feeling even the slight bit of hypocrisy. You know, we can't be living that way. 
What Peter is saying is that we as believers, with this equal standing of faith, saved by the righteousness of Christ, our salvation is in his righteousness and not our own. But he has imputed to us his righteousness so that we can be declared righteous and so that we can become righteous as we are continually increasing in the knowledge of him. That's the Christian life. And so, may we be protected from effectual blindness. May we be protected from, uh, from appearing to be unbelievers in the way that we live our lives. And may we do so by continuing to make every effort to supplement these kind of qualities to our faith. And of course, Peter comes to that same conclusion as he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. I don't want to get distracted from the flow, though I have a horrible feeling I will do. But let me just, quick word on inclusive translations and whatnot. You know, of course, God is a father God and not mother God. And we're never going to go down such heretical lines. But the word in the original for brothers is the same word that will mean sisters in a feminine form, and when you've got 500 women and two men, you still say brothers in a masculine. That's just how language works. If you're multilingual, bilingual, you probably know this from other languages, but most of us aren't and many don't know. So when versions say brothers and sisters, it's not heretical, they're not compromising, they're just simply translating the text accurately. And I do think there are some times when the audience in a particular passage may only be male and therefore brothers may be appropriate. For, come on, I mean, it's like, what, is Peter only writing to the men? Please. Brothers and sisters is what it should say, in my opinion. Take it or leave it, whatever. Um, anyway, trying not to get too distracted. Therefore, brothers and sisters, which is in the footnote if you're interested, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Okay, what is he saying here? Sure. The danger is, is that we read this passage and we say, oh, we, we've, got to, we've got to keep working at our, at our sanctification. We've got to keep working at doing good or else we might not be saved. Oh, doesn't that sound like salvation by works right there? That's not what the text is saying. Sure here in the sense of assurance. In other words, if you look blind, you might be blind. That's essentially what's being said. You know, if, if, a, if, you, if, a person, if you say to a person, can you see? And they say, yeah, of course I can see. 20-20 vision, not a problem. And you say, how many fingers am I holding up? And they say, one. I'm holding up three if you're listening on audio. It, which, by the way, on all, those listening by audio, makes you blind effectively. You, that's the point, you can't see. So if a person says, oh, I can see, I can see, but they're clearly, obviously blind, then you're not going to believe they can see. The whole point of this context is that Peter is saying, look, there's a real danger here, guys, that if we don't keep maturing, if we don't keep growing, that we can become so ineffective that we can become effectively blind. We can look like unbelievers. And in that situation, what assurance can we have? You see, if you thought that what I said in the sermon so far was somehow kind of pushing a, you know, 
don't, don't, don't suggest to anybody they might not be saved ever, even if they're living in terrible, continuous, willful sin, because that, you know, that's separating wheat from the tares. I'm not saying that either. I, I'm, I'm saying that, you know, there are some people who look blind who most likely are blind. And there are some people who look blind who maybe aren't. And Peter's warning is to live a kind of life, to be diligent to live the kind of life that means that it is obvious to you and to those around you that you are not blind so that you can make the things that you have, the calling and the election, absolutely sure. You have those things. You have been called. You are elected. You are chosen. But you need to be sure of that. And you become sure when you see God working in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know, again and again, it's, it's, this is a very difficult area because again and again, as I go through the Christian life, I come across people who should be questioning their salvation and just don't. And again and again, I come across people, dear, sensitive souls, who really shouldn't question their salvation at all, and constantly do so. I'm not sure I know what the answer is. Because it seems that sometimes some poor Christian stumbles into that same old sin, whatever it is that they struggle with again, and they'll come to me, and I've seen this more times than I can care to mention, and they'll come and they'll cry and they'll say, I've done it again. Am I even saved? And I'll always say to them, your tears are the fruit of your salvation. Because if you weren't crying, if you didn't care, that would be far more of a concern. But those ones who are sinning in secret and aren't crying and aren't concerned, they're not the ones who are coming to see whether they're saved or not. It's, it's just tragic. That's my pastoral frustrations there for you. But this is a difficult issue, no doubt. Peter is saying that those of us who are saved, those of us who have obtained this faith, that we not only have this faith, we need to add to it. The faith means that we have a calling and we have an election, but we need to have assurance and we give ourselves assurance by seeing the Holy Spirit work in us and change us. That's the increasing again. I don't want to be dealing with the same sins year in, year out. I want to change. This time next year, I want there to be sins in my life that I am working on that right now I'm not even aware that they're sins. I want there to be problems that I don't even know I have. I want to be dealing with this time next year. I want to keep on maturing. And I say that just painfully aware that as I say these words, what I'm asking for is the equivalent of having a cheese grater run down the side of my arm. God, just do what you need to do, but make me more like Jesus. Diligent, brothers and sisters, diligent. Because we need to be sure. And if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 
That's difficult. And if you think that this issue, he's going to deal with it here and move on, we've got even bigger problems coming up in chapter 2, but we'll leave that for chapter 2. But when he says falling here, is he saying, look, if you are saved, then you're going to keep on going, and you're going to keep on going, and therefore there won't be a fall because you are saved? Or is he saying that in the same way, as you can look blind, though you're not blind, that you might appear to fall, though you're not in the fullest sense, fallen. And I'm open to both of those things. I'm not going to definitively say one way or the other. I know that the, the, the general uh, accepted view in the commentaries that I read anyway is that, um, that because we are called and we are chosen, that as we continue to walk in faith, we show ourselves to be Christians, and thus being Christians, we never fall. But I just think that with his emphasis on blindness and how it can, you can appear to be blind, though you are not, I do wonder whether there is a possibility um, that he's saying here, look, if you keep living as you should, if you're diligent to keep on maturing in the faith, then you will never backslide. Certainly, whether he's saying one or the other, neither are wrong and both are certainly true. And so I think the thing that we should take away is this. We don't want to be shamed. We don't want to fall into sin. We don't want to find out we were never saved. We want our salvation to be sure. We want it to be seen to be sure. And so we need to be diligent to do these things. And then finally, for today anyway, in verse 11... For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For in this way, this is how it happens. You're diligent. You keep making every effort to supplement your faith with these qualities. And in this way, if you keep diligent, if you keep adding, if you keep supplementing, if you keep doing, then God will provide it. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. Not a contradiction. Who gives us a place in the kingdom? That will be God. It's a work of God. It's a work of grace. It's not by works that no man should boast. Nonetheless, we are going to constantly make an effort to show the work that God has done. We want to make sure that we're living by the new nature, in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, to manifest our faith. When we finish Second Peter, by the way, we're going off to the book of James. So we're going to be in this for a while. But we want to manifest our faith with our works. But it is nonetheless a work of God. But when we allow God to work through us, when we show our salvation to be sure, then we have an assurance that when the time comes, that God, with his rich provision, when he says richly provided, I can't help but think Peter is thinking of Ephesians 1 and the riches that we have in Christ. Richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Word about the kingdom. There is a kingdom that is coming that we should be excited about. And it's a kingdom that it seems that almost most Christians today don't even believe in. And even some that do don't think about. 
The story of the kingdom. Very, very brief history. God promises a kingdom to Israel. He promises it throughout the Old Testament continuously. It is a kingdom that will come and there will be a king of that kingdom and it is a kingdom that will never end. The kingdom in the Old Testament is consistently, constantly, oh my goodness, how many times have we seen this in Isaiah in the last couple of years? Always seen to be an earthly kingdom with an earthly king who physically rules and reigns on the earth in a particular place upon the earth. Always. And then we come to the New Testament. And Jesus says, hey, Israel, the kingdom's at hand. And they reject the king and with it his offer of the kingdom. And so immediately after they've rejected him, remember they rejected him, they said, you're not the Messiah, you do the stuff that you do by the power of Beelzebub. You can cast out demons because you've got a demon which is some of the worst logic ever known in human history, but it's what they went with, so let's let them have that. And the result of that is that Jesus then immediately starts teaching about the kingdom in a way that has never been taught before. And he starts to talk about the kingdom being like a mustard seed, and the kingdom being this spiritual thing, and the kingdom being within you, and all of this kind of stuff. Now at this point, I hope that we can all agree that the Old Testament spoke of a physical kingdom and that Jesus is now talking about a spiritual kingdom. Now you've got a decision to make. Either Jesus says, abracadabra, it's not there anymore. It's gone. It's spiritual. Or to be more frank, you've made God a liar for the bulk of the two-thirds of the Bible. Or... There is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom that was mysterious in that it was not prophesied and spoken of in the Old Testament, but yet the kingdom that was spoken about, the kingdom that was offered to them, the kingdom they rejected, will still come. And that's what I believe. And I think, I could argue in this text, that's what Peter believes too. Because Peter does not say, for in this way you will be richly provided with something that you already have, because that will be contradictory. He's saying you'll be provided with an entrance. If if you're going to be provided with an entrance, that's somewhere that you're not yet. And yet when Jesus speaks in Matthew 13, and following in all the parables, following the rejection of Jesus' messiahship by that generation of Israel, when he, when he speaks in parables, which by the way, he does so while quoting from Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about God imposing blindness, there's our context, blindness upon Israel so that they won't be saved, so that they won't believe. Here, we're going to talk in parables, not easy little stories to make it easier to communicate so everybody understands, but parables that are deliberately designed to hide the truth from unbelievers who are not permitted to know those truths. And he talks in those parables and he says, here you are. This is the kingdom that you have now. And Peter says, there's another kingdom that you haven't yet had entrance to. I believe that when God says something in the Old Testament, that he's going to do something, then he's going to do it. And my reasoning is very simple in this matter. He's God. I don't really think I should need to explain it much more than that. And so what Peter is saying is this, and and boy... Contextually, we'd spent nearly a year teaching First Peter, right? 
We know all about suffering. We know all about how we respond in the midst of suffering. We know that these people had endured great suffering. The hope for them was not that they had their best life now. The hope for them was not that, oh, I have the kingdom of God, hallelujah, nothing else that I want. I'm, I'm, this, just, this can go on forever. I just love it when Nero kills my family. Oh, it's just wonderful. Just, just, let's just keep it going, Lord. This is the kingdom right here, right now on earth. Nonsense. There's a day that is coming when I will stand in human legs, on human feet. I still have an issue whether God's going to make me keep my size 14s or not, but I'll have feet of some sort in my glorified body. And I will no longer wrestle with sin. I will no longer have the shadow of death hang over me. I will be able to worship my God in the flesh. I will see him in the flesh. And I will worship him with a pure heart. There will be no selfishness. There will be no pride mingled up in my worship as it is today. His work in me will be complete. And every day I'm on this earth, I say, God, thank you that, that one day there will be an entrance to that kingdom. And my friends, that hope will keep you from sinning far more than any stick ever will. He saved me from sin. That I might be free from sin. That one day sin may no longer entangle me at all. And that is a motivation to diligently walk a godly life. One last thing and we're done. Look at this statement here. Whose kingdom is it? Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We've talked about this last few weeks it's come up we had the the wonderful statement in verse one uh god and savior jesus christ we saw that the the structure of the greek was such that god and savior had to refer to the same person it is a definitive statement of the deity of jesus christ jesus is very infrequently called god why because the word god is a word that speaks of the realm of the unseen, the spiritual realm. We have multiple times in scripture where the, the Hebrew word Elohim is used to speak of false gods, of demonic beings. That the, the word Elohim, God, doesn't uniquely mean our God. Hence, the God above all gods. You wouldn't need to say that if he was the only one, would you? There are other beings who have declared themselves to be God, who, who people worship as if they were God. But there is a word in the Hebrew Bible that is only used of one person, of one God, more accurately. Yahweh. Jehovah in older texts. The name of God. You worship these other gods, but we worship Yahweh. And because they deliberately mispointed 
Oh, we don't want to get into Hebrew. But because they, they, they deliberately forgot how to pronounce the name of God so that no one would take the name of God in vain. Which I think is a misunderstanding of the third commandment, but we'll leave that for another day. But because of that, when they came to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they didn't want to translate the name of God. Maybe they didn't even know how to translate the name of God. So they translated it with the uh, Greek word kurios, meaning Lord. And that's why to this day, in our English Bibles, when the name of God is there, we have Lord in capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's to tell us that the name Yahweh is there in the original. When you see Jesus referred to as our Lord and Saviour, that is not simply saying normally that he is Adonai, the Hebrew word for Lord or Master. It's saying that he's Yahweh. And this gives us a little, some bookends you scholars will want me to call it inclusio. My wife will want me to call it a sandwich. Because she likes it when I do that. We have at the beginning of this passage, our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we have at the end of this section, before he moves on, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. They both speak of the deity of Jesus Christ. But what we need to understand, which so many Christians miss, is that the latter one actually makes it clearer. Jesus is not just from the realm of the unseen. He's not just some spiritual being who became man. He is God who's become man. He is Yahweh become man. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God of heaven and earth. And so, it is his kingdom that we shall go into. It is his kingdom that he has promised. And when we think on that, and when we chew on that, when we meditate on that, then I believe we will be instinctively desiring to be diligent to add these qualities to our lives. That we might live the kind of lives that we were called and chosen to live. And we would do so for his unending glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this magnificent passage of scripture. Father, if there's anyone here today who is literally, in a spiritual sense, blind, not short-sighted but unsaved, may they trust in you. May they trust in your death on the cross, dying in their place for their sins, that they might gain entrance to your kingdom. May nobody come through these doors and come to this place who does not equally come through the doors of heaven. And Lord, may none of us live as if we were blind. May we not tolerate sin in our lives. May we supplement to our faith these qualities. May we work at sanctifying ourselves, knowing that it is ultimately you who is doing that work. That we might live lives that declare 
your saving work. That we might live lives that declare that you have conquered sin. That we might live lives that declare that our sinful desires have been conquered. And that our desire for you is the greatest desire in our heart. May it be so, Lord. Amen.